This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. I'm your host, Amy Breslow. Each week, I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. When I use the word gender, I mean the range of social roles, personality traits, attitudes, behaviors, values, and relative power that society assigns to females, males, and other individuals. Gender is an identity that is learned. How we define gender changes over time and can vary within and across cultures. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Episode 14. My guest today is Mary Catherine, or MK, who identifies as a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, an attorney, and a playwright, and prefers the pronouns she and her. Hello, Mary Catherine. Welcome to Your Own Voice. Hi, it's good to be here. So, MK, how do you identify? I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I'm also an attorney and a playwright. And where are you from? Oklahoma. And what pronouns do you prefer? She, her, and hers. When is the first time that you remember being aware of different gender roles? That is a great question. I'm not truly sure if I fully understood gender as a child, but certainly I was, you know, learning different gender roles, just watching what my parents did. You know, I mean, I did grow up in a house where my father was mostly absent and my mother was, you know, the caretaker and the caregiver. And so I think at a young age, that was an assumption that I had because that is what I saw in the home. My father was working outside the home. Of course, my mother, this is probably way more details than is necessary, but they ended up being divorced. My mom went back and got her PhD. So then, of course, I was being raised by a single mom, effectively with a PhD who, you know, was teaching at a university and um, was not home a lot, actually. And So in terms of what I learned about gender roles, I mean, you know, I had some, at a very young age, some teachings, I guess, from from my family and my homes, but I would say most of it was coming from mass media and what I saw in movies and what I saw just in terms of the toys that girls are supposed to play with and the toys that boys, boys are supposed to play with. You know, so, I mean, I think probably like most folks, it was a very young age when I was already getting those messages. You identify yourself as a member of the Cherokee Nation, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, did you grow up within a Cherokee Nation community, or were you different from Mm -hmm. the rest of the folks in your area? Well, you know, so the Cherokee Nation Reservation uh, exists inside the state of Oklahoma, and I grew up... I was born just a couple hours west of the very edge of the western edge of Cherokee Nation's reservation. I was born in Oklahoma City. And then we moved to Joplin, Missouri, which is just northeast of the Cherokee Nation reservation by maybe 25 miles or maybe 30 miles. I'm close, though. Then I went to high school in Kansas. So I always lived, and even today I have a house in Skytook, Oklahoma, um, I split time between Oklahoma and the D.C. area, but uh, it's funny. My house in, in Skytook happens to be about 10 or 15 miles west of the western edge of Cherokee Nation. So really, in my entire life, I have never lived 
inside the borders of Cherokee Nation's reservation. But that's actually not uncommon for a lot of Cherokee Nation citizens today in the United States for many reasons. You know, some fled uh, during the Civil War because of the violence and the, and the turmoil within Cherokee Nation and also the turmoil outside of Cherokee Nation that was um, being acted out in Cherokee Nation lands. Some were taken away by the BIA, the federal government. For those that don't know, what is sure, the BIA? Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's a federal agency that the United States created to... Well, I mean, you know, I think before a lot of... I think most Native folks would say initially the BIA had some very sinister intentions or folks who were entrusted within the BIA did very sinister things. I mean, the Osage murders is a good example. Um, and that happened for a lot of tribes. The Indian agents from the BIA were very corrupt. Today, uh, the BIA is an important agency because it is upholding the trust duties and responsibilities the federal government maintains to sovereign tribal nations that predate the United States. So, you know, we have a different relationship with the BIA today. The BIA isn't perfect, of course, but I think most natives look to the BIA and, and look to to hold it accountable for the obligations that it has. But you know, in the middle of the 1900s, they removed a lot of folks from their homes and, and kind of dumped them in the middle of urban areas, the goal of assimilation and, and sort of erasure of, of tribal cultural identity and trying to make Indians, not Indians, and make them just sort of normal. Well, normal's not the right word. I don't know what you would say the word is to, maybe just non-Indian white American citizens was the goal. Did you have an awareness of gender roles that were different Mm. with other Cherokee Nation friends or family versus what you had within your own house because you grew up with your mom being head of household? Or it sounded, I don't want to misrepresent if your mom was head of household or not. Well, she sort of was. I mean, mean, that's, you know, when you're a child of divorce, it's a little complicated. Um, But Yes. You know, my Cherokee role models, um, my grandmother, for instance, my father's mother, um, the other Cherokee women that have really influenced my life, uh, you know, come from a Cherokee culture that is very distinct and unique and different than the mainstream culture of the United States, right? Women are considered sacred to Cherokee Nation. We historically um, have held very specific important positions that are leadership positions. They're not, you know, you wouldn't find their direct analog in a traditional Western government that's European, but in our indigenous form of government, you know, women would oftentimes be the deciding, would be the person who would decide whether or not our nation would go to war, right? So there were, you know, we weren't as centralized in our form of power. So there wasn't one person who was in control and could say everything. People, different people in the community had different roles and responsibilities. And certainly, you know, our identities um, in Cherokee culture, you follow your mother's clan in terms of where you identify. So quite the opposite of United States, your name is what your dad's name was, right? Well, kind of the opposite for, for Cherokee Nation, right? You follow your man, your mother's clan. That's your family. That's your quote-unquote last name, even though it may not be your last name now that we're all anglicized. And then I think the other reality, though, is that so many of our families are intermarried and so much of our traditional culture has been... It hasn't been erased because we still have it, but it's it's been marginalized it's been attacked, and I think, you know, a lot of us are just trying to survive in the modern world. So, 
my experience growing up, and also I was growing up outside the borders of Cherokee Nation, and there are some communities within Cherokee Nation that have, I think, through closer geographic proximity and through intention, have maintained you know Cherokee language, right? All these other aspects of Cher- Cherokee ceremonies, um, stomp dances, things that, you know, when you move outside the borders of the nation, that you don't have as much access to that growing up. So I'm just, to be very honest and frank, I am a Cherokee woman, but I don't know probably half the things that my grandmother knew or a quarter of the things that my great-great-great-grandmother knew. I'm on a journey to learn and to recover all that has been taken from us. And I think that's the experience of a lot of Native folks today, but it also, you know, we're, we're very, we're all very different. Some of us grew up at home in our tribal communities. Some of us grew up in urban areas away. Some of us grew up in mixed families. Some of us grew up in families where your dad is from one tribe and your mother's from another, or maybe your dad's from three tribes and your mother's from three tribes. Cause we're, you know, so culturally the way in which we grow up today is, is also very different than, than it was in the past. I think you beautifully captured something that I thought, but you've just confirmed that you have this matriarchal tradition within the Cherokee Nation and other Native First Nation communities mm-hmm. that I think is wonderful, and it's great to hear about that. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, it's we would say matrilineal. Thank you. Because right? we don't want to be yeah. repeating the patriarchy, but yeah. but matrilineal, and hopefully that will erase the, the archy part of it. <laughs> Thank you. I, I One of my favorite things about this podcast is I learn from my yeah. guests. <laughs> and I was like, I know that's not the right word, but I don't know what to say. What gender issues do you confront in the workplace? Or is it a non-issue for you? I do confront gender issues in the workplace. I you know, work as a lawyer. I work as a playwright. A lot of the institutions I work with um, are run by men or men are in positions of power. And to be quite honest, um, we have women in positions of power that I think, like all of us have been um, socialized with certain gender norms. So sometimes it's a woman who is perhaps behaving in a way that is can be off-putting, you know, because it's based on gender norms or bias or other things of that nature. And so, yeah, I've, I've experienced, definitely experienced some gender Discrimination, for sure. You know, I've, I've walked into courtrooms and, and had judges ask me when the partner's going to show up for the law firm, and I am the partner for the law firm. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've, most often when males in power see me, they don't assume that I am either the playwright of the play they just saw or the attorney who filed the brief they read. You know, and I think that's, we've come a long ways since my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation, but I think we still... We still have a lot of work to do in combating the gender stereotypes in the United States. I'm curious, what do you say to people who make that false assumption? You can think of some of the ways that you've replied. I try to be gracious in those moments, uh, usually because that's an encounter where uh, my client's interests or my interests with the play that I'm writing are going to be better served if I stay on good terms with the individual I'm interacting with. And... Oftentimes, when folks are, men especially, but women too, are challenged with, you know, you have just made a statement based on a gender stereotype and your statement is false, they can get very defensive. And I think in those moments, there's not, 
there's really not going to be learning or growth. And so not that I also don't think it's it's our burden as women to to ignore the way in which um, because it is it's emotionally burdensome to have to walk through this world in that way. I don't think it's our job to educate everyone who is misinformed and misguided and says offensive things. At the same time, if I'm in an emotionally safe space and can handle it, why not be kind and gracious and just try to try to maybe open someone's hearts or mind, you know, and, and instead of coming back with something really witty and sarcastic that might cut them down one, which oftentimes I think we want to do. And sometimes it's probably just appropriate because every now and then I think um, you have to engage in self-care and sometimes that's just letting letting someone have it I mean, not in a violent, aggressive way, but letting them know that what they're saying is really stupid. I appreciate that. The The word that comes to mind for me is discernment. And I, mm-hmm. too, have totally been there. Yeah. Well, it's hard because, um, you know, it's, it's never a one-size-fits-all. And there are often times where I know I should educate someone. I just don't have it in me. And I feel defeated afterwards. And I think that we have to be gracious with ourselves, too, that... You know, you know the other side isn't engaging in that conversation, and that's not to say that we shouldn't engage in this own com- our conversation about how we handle these things, but we have to give ourselves the space too to just be human sometimes. I know for myself, there have been a number of times where I've been in that situation. Sometimes I think of something, sometimes I it just escapes me, and I actually afterwards will go to a friend or go to a mentor and say, you know. How would you have handled it? I will actually seek somebody's advice and they'll give me something that I'll hold for the next time because there's always a next time. That's true. It's very true. And I think the the friends and family that we have are, you know, oftentimes the best support systems for these situations. And that's also a good reminder that anytime something like that happens, we're still learning too. And so you'll have another opportunity to, to exercise what you learned. I'm sure you're very aware that during the past couple years with the Me Too movement and the other social movements, Mm -hmm. the conversation around gender has been really different. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what do you think is possible today that was not possible even a few years ago, given this new conversation around gender? I think it is now possible to have conversations in the workplace that we couldn't have before because it's not even it's not even about legal changes because I'm a lawyer and I love legal changes it's a cultural shift we had laws preventing rape right um, but we had we needed to have that cultural shift to say it's okay to accuse someone as powerful as Harvey Weinstein right it's okay to accuse someone that's that powerful. Um, in fact, our culture, our society is going to support you and he's going to be held accountable. Whether or not it's in a court of law, we're not going to revere him and look to him as the God of Hollywood because we don't hold in our culture. If you're a rapist, you can't be a God, right? So that's the messaging that's coming out. And I think for a lot of women who work in in places that trade on power, which is pretty much everywhere in America, it was it was always clear if the person with the most power in the organization raped you, what you know, what what I mean if, if you did speak up, you were you were excommunicating yourself from that institution or that community. And I think 
that will that will still be a reality for some women who speak up just because i mean it's not like our entire country you know changed overnight but it we're in a transition period and it's an exciting transition period and i think the change happened much more quickly you know in a large proportion than i think anyone ever anticipated and so i think any man who thought it was okay to rape, obviously that is just ridiculous. But so it's not it's not that conversation that men are now having. They're not that's not, oh, is it okay to rape? Is it not okay to rape? But it's the other conversations that are also flowing from that in terms of it's changed the conversation. Well, actually, it's created a conversation that never happened before, where now men are having to think about, well, if I say that I love that dress on her, you know, how is that gonna make her feel? And that's frustrating to a lot of men. But actually, that's really great for women, right? That like, if I don't want my body discussed in my workplace, I don't have to sit and listen to men discuss my body. That's my choice now, right? I get to say, and if I do like that, and if I'm like, Harry, every time I walk in, into the office and you see me in a dress you like, I'd love for you to say that. Great, then then great, you know, women can say that too. But before the rash, the, the, I mean, the underlying assumption was, if a man wants to compliment a woman's butt in her dress or her boobs or her whatever, I mean, it could be her right elbow, he gets to do that. And now the assumption is actually you have to you have to respect women. And I think the more the more autonomy we gain over our bodies in our in our society, the the more we're gonna gain just politically, you know, in every other arena. You know, whether it's in the government, whether it's in the federal courts, whether it first, you know, U.S. president that's a woman. I mean, I think everything's possible now. MK, do you have any life goals or dreams that you chose not to pursue? And if so, do you think gender played a role in any of your decisions? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, my dream was always to be um, a law clerk on the Supreme Court. I wanted that more than anything, just about, you know? And I tried very hard for several years in a row to apply. And I'm not sure that gender had anything to do with it. It may have. I mean, certainly there are more men on the Supreme Court than women. Um, and I think men are, men are well, actually, no, I think, but I think there is a statistic out there, and probably someone listening to this podcast has access to that. Supreme Court justices tend to hire more male clerks than female. So, so yes, gender probably had something to do with that. But I think many things had a lot to do with that too. But that was, you know, and that's, it's interesting how life works out. But that was a that was probably one of the hardest dreams that, you know, at some, every, there are many points in our lives where we have to say, you know what, that was a dream I had and it's, it's not going to come true and that's okay. I'm doing all these other wonderful things. And, and in fact, life happens for a reason, and I very much believe that. But that was probably one of the more painful ones to give up. MK, can you tell me about a time when you thought, I can't do something, or if I try to do this thing, that the consequences would be so great that it simply wasn't worth trying? Mm -hmm. I had a family secret growing up that I think the more I've talked about it, the more I learned that so many of our families in the United States have a secret like that. But as a kid, I thought that if I said this is what's happening in our home, that it would destroy our entire family and that I wouldn't have my family anymore. So 
you know, that is probably the best example of that that I can come up with. And to be quite honest, I did as an adult finally say this is what happened and it did destroy the family momentarily. Um, and part of the family probably irreversibly, but I think that facing those issues within our families is one of the things that plagues Americans the most. And I think of some amazing playwrights out there that have written plays about that subject in particular, like Paula Vogel. And I just, now that I do the work too as a domestic violence advocate, um, I do a lot of work on the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, I think Americans by and large like to think that um, most of the horrible things that happen to our children happen by strangers or people outside the home. And in reality, it's a lot of our children are most in danger in their own home. And I just think um, as a society, we have a lot of work to do to, to keep our children safe in their own families. Is there anything that you would care to share here about things that you think just regular people can do to keep their children safe? Well, I think a lot of us are afraid to accept that someone in our own family that we're blood related to could be a perpetrator. And I, that's hard. It's very hard, very hard thing to accept. But I think there's a lot of ego in that too, because of your connection to that person and your family and your identity and your family narrative. I think we have to get over ourselves and put the children first. And that's a hard thing to do. But I think that's what we need to start doing in this country. And I think it's going to take some really smart, um, probably psychologists and counselors and medical experts to heal our... And, and also, I think there's a lot in the religious community, too, and, and ceremony and, and spiritual practices, because we have, we have a lot of trauma in this country to heal, too. And that is a, a huge reason why we have, you know, violence and assault in our homes, right? It's because people people are carrying so much trauma in this country, and... And that's something we also have to solve. Is there some place in your life where you decided to push on anyway, even though gender expectations and gender norms said don't? Yeah, I mean, I think in, especially in the legal world, you know, I, uh, (laughs) coming right out of law school, I went and worked at a huge, massive um, law firm where, you know, pretty much, I mean, there was, there was a huge gender divide there, just like as there is still in pretty much every law firm in the United States today. And there were certain moments, um, and anyone who worked at that law firm with me will know exactly what I'm talking about, but where male partners would say completely inappropriate things, maybe in an email to the entire office, um, about a woman. And it was like, no one was going to respond. And there were times one time in particular, where I just hit reply all and said why it was inappropriate. And and I sent that email and then I immediately thought, I'm going to get fired. And I texted my mom and I just said, I may have just lost my job. Of course, you know, there's all these federal law protections and I probably would have had like the lawsuit of the century on my hands because exhibit A would have been the email chain. But in my mind though, you know, and, and, and in the reality, I will be very honest, there were people, there were partners at the firm who treated me differently after that. And, you know, they were smart people. So there's nothing you could have proven in a court of law that I was discriminated against in this way or that way, because I'd spoken out against um, sexual harassment in the office. Right. But it was very clear, you know, 
by the different, by the way, a few specific partners just totally changed their tone with me, changed their interactions with me. It was really obvious what had happened. So at the end of the day though, I, I can't tell you how many women and especially at law firms, you know, I, I had privilege because I was an associate, so I was an attorney. So even though there were men who said horrible sexual things to me while I worked there, they say like 10 times those things to the secretaries because in their minds, the secretaries have less power. And so I can't tell you how many female secretaries came to me and just said, thank you for speaking up. I wanted to say something, but I can't. And that was heartbreaking too, but also, you know, just intense to see how many people were, had, you know, had felt so silenced in that environment. Of course, this was all before me too. So I would like to think that a law firm would have a different response now that we've we've lived through and moved through the Me Too movement. Let's hope so. <laughs> yes, let's hope so. MK, is there something that you'd like to see regular people in this country do to make a change around issues of gender? That's a great question. I think well, I would love I would love to see consumers of media just say networks will listen, right? I want to watch shows written by women. I want to watch shows directed by women. I want to go to plays written by women. I want to see plays directed by women. Uh, I think most Americans, when they go to plays written by women, they're like, I love this, but they don't connect the dots that right now, like 82% of the plays produced in the United States are by white, straight, heterosexual men, you know, who probably are Protestant. So the you know white straight protestant heterosexual men are not 82% of our population and yet that's the majority of the content that gets produced right so there's also accountability for us the consumers are we saying to those cultural institutions in hollywood in theater there are some really amazing theaters in dc um they recently had a women's festival which was great right but everywhere around the country folks need to be requesting more content created and written by women, I think. I totally agree. (laughs) Fully, fully agree. MK, what in your personal life brought you to want to work on gender issues? I think for me, I did grow up in a family that for has many generations and multiple layers of survivors of sexual assault. And so for me, seeing that in my own family, and I think seeing that in the communities around me, I just felt compelled to do something to change it. And I also, you know, understanding the role that violence against women has had or has played in the way in which it's been used as a tool to dismantle tribal sovereignty. And specifically, I'm thinking of instances like the Cherokee Trail of Tears, where the U.S. soldiers raped Cherokee women. You know, it has been used as a tool of warfare against us, and it still is today. Native women still experience the highest rates of domestic violence and sexual assault in the country, higher than any other group in the United States. That's no accident. That's the consequence of the last 400 years of history and law, right? But 
you know, I sort of, some of that was, was really conscious when I first started doing this work. And then some of it has been just the more I educate myself, the more I understand why I'm doing this work. And when I was researching for a law review article, I was writing for the Harvard Journal Journal on Gender and the Law with my colleague, Sarah Deer. We co-authored that piece together. Uh, I was looking at the old, the old, the old, some of the Cherokee laws we had in the books that the tribal council passed in the 1820s. And there's one that my great, 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 great grandfather signed his name to where the Cherokee Nation tribal council outlawed rape. And they outlawed rape for anyone who committed it. So it didn't matter if you were a citizen of France, if you were a citizen of the United States, Cherokee Nation, Creek Nation, Choctaw Nation. If you came onto Cherokee lands and you raped a woman, you would be criminally prosecuted by the Cherokee Nation. So that was something my, my great, 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 great grandfather worked on. And at that time, of course, the Georgia state of Georgia was instructing its military guard, its militia, to rape Cherokee women. Um, that We have that in writing. That's historic fact. And the idea, of course, was that if you rape their women and they were burning down homes, you know, pretty soon that they're going to leave, you know. And uh, that was just one of the goals of removal before they successfully convinced Andrew Jackson to just do it himself. And... Of course, many people don't realize this, but by the time Cherokee Nation was removed, that was under Martin Van Buren. So there were many different presidential administrations that carried out these tasks. It wasn't just one man or one president. But we, we exercised criminal jurisdiction over anyone who committed crimes in our lands until 1978 when the United States Supreme Court took that jurisdiction away in a case called Oliphant. And so since that case um, today, if a, if a non-Indian comes onto tribal lands and rapes a Native woman, our tribal governments can't can't do anything about it, and that's a huge crisis. And so that is what most of my work focuses on, and I see it as a part of my grandfather's legacy to restore the jurisdiction that 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 he oversaw, right? That Cherokee Nation executed when he was alive, and to restore that today for our Cherokee Nation citizens. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm just gonna ask kind of a related question. Sure. Wondering, as somebody who works on advocacy, mm-hmm. either what are some of the, the things, the actions that you have seen people already do, mm-hmm. or are there things that you're like, gosh, I wish just regular people, like you, you made a comment mm-hmm. earlier in the conversation, but are there other things in this area that you would like to see folks yeah. take on? Um, call your congressmen and women and your senators, especially right now. We're trying to get VAWA passed through the Senate. Um, the Violence Against Women Act the bill that came from the House, H.R. 1585, restores pieces of the tribal criminal jurisdiction that the Supreme Court took away in Oliphant. So call your senator and tell them you, you know, you hope that they vote for that because you believe tribal nations should be able to protect their women from violent perpetrators on tribal lands, right? But, you know, that might sound like, well, that's so easy. Yeah, but hardly anyone's doing it, you know? And here we are facing the highest rates of violence in the country and no one's making a phone call to advocate. There are also a lot of easy ways that I think do make a difference. Uh, because we're a small percentage of the population, we're, we're usually overlooked. You know, people think, well, no one, no one cares about such a small percentage. So if we get a lot of folks on social media, we have a um, sort of a Twitter storm the first Tuesday of every month. And you can join us at hashtag VAWA2019 and tweet and just say, I believe tribal nations should be able to protect their women, restore tribal jurisdiction. Those kinds of things are small things that everyone can do. And there's no reason to not do them. I mean, even if you're a busy person and you're, you know, you've got a family to raise and feed and, and a job, and I understand that's all of our lives, um, you can take 20 minutes once a month to tweet. 
And, and it does make a difference because if, if everyone were to actually do that, right, then we would have a lot more political power in affecting this change. And, and that change will actually save lives. Thank you. And lastly, is there anything else you'd like to add either on something that we already talked about or something that I didn't bring up? One of your first questions was about what what was imparted in me in, uh, in terms of you know the matrilineal side of our Cherokee culture. And although there was a lot that I wasn't privy to as a child growing up outside of Cherokee Nation, I, I did spend a good deal of time with my grandmother. And when I think back to some of the most formative experiences as a child, the times I've spent with my grandmother and what she taught me about what it meant to be Cherokee and specifically to be a descendant of my grandfathers who fought for our sovereignty in the United States Supreme Court and won a seminal ruling that, of course, Andrew Jackson ignored. But when I think back to that, you know, as a little girl, uh, I didn't quite understand the position our women were, quote unquote, subjugated to in American society, because as far as I could tell, my grandmother was the most powerful thing in my universe. And so what's been amazing is to grow up and become an adult and to just, she's kind of always there for me, even though she's not physically here anymore, and how much she's inspired me to fight for what I fight for. And I just think about all of us and the different women who who raised us and who who inspired us to become who we are. And so I just, you know, in closing, wanted to, to call her out and thank her for everything that she gave me. That's beautiful. And I'm, I'm so pleased to have that, to have that sentiment on the show. Anything else you'd like to add? Thank you. Thank you for asking these questions and for creating a space for women to just, to just talk. It's kind of hard, to, hard real estate to come by nowadays. It is absolutely my pleasure. MK, thank you so much for coming yeah. over. And yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Wado. Wado? Yeah. Wado. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. Your Own Voice is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with IT support from Alex Moreno and is registered with ProtectRight, music by Kevin McLeod. I see each conversation as an adventure, and I love being surprised by where we go. If you found you had any questions during the discussion, I'd really like to know. You can submit questions on the website, yourownvoice.org contact. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back in one or two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well.